Today's reading is from John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered them, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's uh, Dave Hopping. I am the uh, pastor of Emerging Generations here at New Life Dresher, where our purpose is to know Jesus and to make him known. Um, this morning, as I was uh, coming in, uh, I was thinking about, um, you know, the story and just trying to think through, like, how can I, you know, share something that is uh, an illustration of this? And um, I, don't, I don't know if I got there, but uh, I was reminded as I was as I was coming in, I was thinking ahead of, of just the different elements of my life, and I was like, you know, in March, uh, my wife and I are actually going to be uh, celebrating 20 years of marriage uh, this March, which is pretty cool. Um, thanks. I think someone, one person was excited. I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks. Uh, and so uh, uh, that also made me remember that it's been about 20 years then since our first major fight as a married couple. Uh, and so we... Uh, we uh, we, when we got married, we went on our honeymoon to um, Turks and, and Caicos. I don't even know. Caicos? Caicos? Yeah. Uh, somewhere in the Caribbean. And um, while we were there, we thought it would be really cool to do... Uh, they had these catamaran boats at our at our resort. They're like these things for two people you sit on. They've got a sail and, and the whole deal. And so we, we walked up to the guy who uh, had the boats, and uh, we said, hey, we'd love to do this. And he said, sure. Uh, and I was like, hey, are you going to go out with us? He's like, no, you guys can do this. And I was like, uh, I don't know about that. Um, and he was like, it's real simple. Uh, you just take this little lever. It only goes left. You know, that's it. It's a piece of cake. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Uh, and he said, the only thing you need to know is just stay in the light blue area. He's like, see the light blue? I was like, yeah. He's like, that's the reef. He's like, the dark blue back there, you don't want to be out there. That's the ocean. Then you're in trouble. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds great. Um, so my wife and I get on this thing. Uh, we start going out, and it was really fun. Like, the wind was blowing, and, uh, you know, we were going kind of fast. It was pretty cool, and so little by little, I'm turning the thing left. What's interesting is the direction we were going uh, this way, left took us towards that dark blue part you're not supposed to go to. Um, and so little by little, we just kept inching our way closer and closer to the blue to the point where I felt like we were kind of at the edge of the blue, 
And I stop us, and we're just sitting there in the water, and we're both looking at each other, and we're like, what do, what do we do? Because if I, if I turn this, we're going to go left into the dark blue, and he told us not to do that. And, you know, let's just say the conversation got a little more lively uh, as, we, as we moved, and, and both her and I are basically yelling at each other at this point because we assume we're going to die, uh, and this was the best way to carry out our last moments. Um, and so we... Finally, we calm down, and we're sitting there, and I finally start thinking, I was like, wait a minute. Like, if this thing only goes left, and I turn it all the way, I'm pretty sure that the worst that's going to happen is we're going to go in a circle. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll head this way towards the blue, but if I just keep it this way, it's just going to keep us going in a circle. And so we're like, I, so I explained this to my wife. We were both still a little unsure of whether or not this logic would be true. And I turn it all the way left, and sure enough, we start heading towards the dark blue, but then we curve back around, and we're both relieved and make our way back, and, and the guy at the shore was like, we're like, we're done. And he was like, you've only been out for like 10 minutes, like you've got plenty, plenty of time. And I was like, no, for the sake of our marriage, we can't do this anymore. Um, and he said, no, you know what, I'll take you out, I'll take you out, and we'll go. And we went out and had a good time, and to be honest, I wish he would have done that in the beginning. Um, but it's weird, like, I realized, like, it, you know, he had explained to us what we needed to do. He said it was pretty easy. And simple, like, logic or simple just understanding of physics was that if we just held it all the way left, we're going to go into a circle, right? Like, it just, that made sense. But in the moment, in our circumstances, we looked around and, you know, we looked at the, the ocean and where we were. We looked at, like, my inability to navigate anything. Um, and we, we just started to not trust what we knew to be true. Um, and I think that's kind of where we land today uh, with these, these disciples. Um, you know, I think the disciples are going to learn something. Uh, the crowd's going to learn something. But we, we come to this place in the gospel where if you've been in the church uh, long enough, uh, you know, at any point, you, you probably have heard this story. It's, it's a pretty common story. Uh, it's, it's the story where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, uh, with five loaves and, and two fish. Um, and I, actually, other than the resurrection, uh, the miracle of the resurrection, it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. So it's in John 6, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and, and Luke 9. And, and I share that because um, it's kind of cool because of that. You know, we're focusing on John, but we can kind of gain uh, some other details to, to kind of fill out what exactly is going on here if we look at the other Gospels. So, for instance, John tells us that this event occurs on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but we know, looking at the other Gospels specifically, they're in, in Bethsaida. Um, and if you look at a map, Bethsaida's on the northern side of, of the Sea of Galilee, and it's just within the boundaries of the region of Galilee. Galilee. Um, so uh, we know then that in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and now we're here uh, back in, in Galilee in chapter 6. Um, and if you remember, as we've kind of been walking through here, Galilee is the region where Jesus has turned the water into wine. Um, it's the region where he heals uh, a nobleman's uh, son. And so uh, to continue with some of the context of this a little bit before we, we jump right in, uh, John begins chapter 6 the same way he begins chapter 5, uh, with the words, after this, which 
I don't know, it's not really a good, clear description of what kind of time has passed, right? Um, you know, he's in Jerusalem, and then he's like, after this, and it's like, what does that mean? Like, the next day? Like, Mark's pretty clear. He's usually like, immediately, immediately. Um, but, but here, John just doesn't seem to give us a, a picture. And, and that's because John is less uh, concerned with the timeline of events uh, in his gospel, and he's more concerned with showing us that Jesus is the divine God who's come to rescue his people. Um, and I, I share that because I want to remind us of something that Anthony shared at the beginning of this uh, in chapter 1, and then he's even reminded us as we've kind of walked through this. But John um, throws out a bunch of these like theological ideas in chapter 1, and it's kind of like the, the illustration that Anthony uses. Uh, a soccer coach at the beginning of practice empties the soccer balls on the field, and then he just kicks each one out to you know different spots. And then throughout the book of John, uh, we just kind of come up to each of these soccer balls that have been and kicked out. And so um, what we're doing here is we're coming up to another ball uh, that he's uh, kicked out. But this story here isn't really the ball itself uh, that we're going to be coming across, the, the theological point that, that John is making. It's actually a miracle that's going to point us to uh, a teaching that Jesus is going to have later in chapter 6. And so with that in mind, I think it's important to take notice that in verse 4, John mentions that the Passover um, is at hand. Um, and I, that, you know, that actually does give us a time marker uh, in the sense that uh, with him saying that, we know that then this chapter 6 takes place approximately a year after chapter 2. Uh, because in chapter 2, uh, when Jesus goes into the temple and, and uh, clears it out, it says at the beginning there um, that it, the, the Passover was at hand. So we know it's about a year from there. But I don't believe that John is primarily concerned with giving us a time marker by mentioning the Passover, but I think he's more concerned about making a theological point about Christ. Uh, the Passover was a celebration remembering how God saved his people um, as they sacrificed a lamb so that death would pass over their homes which led to their flight from Egypt into the wilderness. Um, and with this miracle in John chapter 6, uh, people will also be reminded of God's provision of manna or bread from heaven in the wilderness as they were uh, wandering around there. And so this will help us set the stage for the message that Christ will preach later on in the chapter. Uh, but in this passage, I believe that we'll see some truths played out about how Christ works, like the fact that um, he cares about our needs and, and also that sometimes he'll ask us to do things that seem impossible. But ultimately, this miracle points us to a, a ball that John kicked out in chapter 1, that is, the word became flesh, and in him is life. And so would you join me in prayer as we uh, begin to look at this chapter? Lord, I just want to thank you for all of your love and all of your mercy and all of your grace. I thank you that you... Do not leave us alone. You continue to work. You continue to build your kingdom. We praise you, Lord, for the members that have joined today, for those who've been baptized. Uh, Lord, it is encouraging to our souls um, to see your work. Uh, and, and as we watch that, your gospel continues to work out in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that this morning we would have open ears and open hearts, that your truth would speak to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help me not to ramble. <laughs> we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so the first point I want to look at is that Christ, uh, he cares about our needs and he seeks to provide. Uh, you know, from the other Gospels, 
uh, we see we know that prior to this story here in chapter six of John, that we see that the apostles have just returned from um, Jesus had sent the apostles out to preach and to heal the sick. Uh, we also know that news about Jesus is getting out there, and so there's these large crowds that are starting to gather and, and follow him. Uh, we also know that, that Herod the Tetrarch, who had just beheaded John the Baptist, is starting to hear these stories and starting to wonder, like, who is this guy? Like, I, I want to kind of uh, see what's going on. Um, and in Mark 6.31, we see that, um, you know, the disciples and Jesus have been doing so much that they've even, they themselves have had no leisure to, to even eat. So they've, they're spent at this point. Like they've just been moving nonstop. Um, there's all this craziness going on around them. And so Jesus decides like, hey guys, let's head over to, Be, uh, to Bethsaida and, um, and take a break. Let's get, let's get just some R&R and, uh, and take a break. Now, I don't know about you. I haven't really had the experience of like being chased down by 5,000 people, um, or anything like that. So I'm not sure I can relate. I mean, I've seen the videos of the Beatles running and like lots of girls chasing them and all that. Um, but I do, I do wonder. I think some of us can relate. Um, like it, for instance, if you've ever been the parent of a toddler or in charge of a toddler and you've decided to head to the bathroom for a moment of solace, and quiet, and then all of a sudden the door starts shaking, and that little creepy hand comes underneath, and just, like, maybe, maybe just maybe that's the feeling um, that, that they were having um, as they look up and, and see these crowds. Um, and so, you know, these crowds, they can't get enough uh, and, and, and so, like I said, you know, Jesus goes to get, get rest, but they, they figure out where he's going and they follow him to meet him there. Um, and so, like I said, kind of like the, the toddler at the door, they show up expecting some rest and peace and here comes everyone. Um, and so how does, uh, how does Jesus respond to this interruption of rest? Well, we see in Matthew fourteen fourteen it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And that just really jumps out at me. Um, he has compassion on them. He heals their sick. Um, he's not annoyed. He's not frustrated. He's filled with compassion and love. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I, I don't think that this is a call to be working nonstop. Um, rest is good. Rest is important. And God even calls us to rest. But what I do think this is, is a call for us to not get annoyed by the needs of others. Um, I don't know about you, but I think I have a tendency to do that. Um, I know when I was that parent in the bathroom, I was not necessarily filled with compassion. Um, and so I, I think it's a call for us to pray that we would have more compassion for those around us. I know that I need to pray regularly to have the eyes and hearts of Christ for those who are around me, especially those who are needy, because Christ has had that same compassion on me. And so as these people gather, he's filled with compassion, and he continues to teach and to heal. Uh, but we also notice in this passage that he's concerned for their nourishment. Um, you know, he is about to perform this miracle, which is going to point to um, a, a bigger truth of who he is. But, but this miracle as well is going to meet the physical needs of, of these people. Um, you know, they were following him so much to the extent that now they found themselves without food, uh, whether, you know, I guess because maybe they, they ran out or maybe just didn't plan well. Um, but here's uh, thousands of people 
who, who have no food. And, and, you know, Christ himself knew what it was to be hungry. Um, he uh, fasted for 40 days in the desert. And so he empathizes. He, he, he understands where they're at and wants to meet this need. Um, he wanted to provide for them. Uh, and this is, this is a picture, I mean, this is how God is. God cares about our physical needs. Jesus says in Matthew 6, um, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so God, God is concerned uh, for your needs, and he looks to meet them so that we don't have to be uh, anxious over these things. And, and so Jesus, um, wanting to meet their needs, he asks his disciples where they can get food for these people. And I wonder, I wonder if this was hard for them to hear. Because as we saw earlier in Mark, they were hungry themselves. Uh, and now Jesus is asking them how they're going to feed all of, these, all of these people. He's inviting them to join him in caring for them. And I wonder what thoughts may have crossed the disciples' minds here. Uh, you know, have them get their own food. We need a break. Or feeding this, these people isn't in my job description, Jesus. That's not what we signed up for. Or maybe they were thinking, they're the ones who didn't prepare well or plan to have food. That's on them. Maybe I'm just projecting on the disciples what I would be thinking. Um, we do know one thing that they're thinking, though, and, and that kind of leads us to, to the next point. God is asking them to do something impossible. Um, if you look back at uh, chapter, five, or chapter 6, verse 5, it says, um, Jesus says to the uh, disciples, um, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Jesus directs this question towards Philip. Um, and, you know, if, we, if you recall in chapter one, when we first meet Philip, we were, we were told that he's actually from uh, Bethsaida, which so it kind of makes sense that, that Jesus was kind of look his way uh, and ask that question. Um, and so Philip looks out over the, uh, the 5,000 men plus uh, women and children, and he starts to do some math in his head, and he decides to throw out some statistics to show Jesus how ridiculous his question is. And so in verse 7, he says, you know, Jesus, uh, 200 denarii uh, wouldn't, even, wouldn't even feed this many people. It wouldn't even begin to feed this many people. Now, 200 denarii, I think a denarii was about a, a day's wage. Um, so 200 would come out to about eight months wages. And so basically, what brilliant Philip is pointing out to Jesus, who, you know, may be the son of God, but clearly hasn't catered an event of this magnitude before. Um, he's saying eight months wages is an insane amount of money, Jesus. Um, and it wouldn't even put a dent in what these people need, so we're going to have to step away from this. Um, yet, Jesus is undeterred for some reason, uh, and as a matter of fact, according to uh, verse 6, it says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus already knew what he was going to do. I don't know about you, but this is not only uh, incredible, but it's also extremely comforting to me. When Christ asks you to do something, he already has in mind what he's going to do. He's not asking you because somehow your specialness helps in a way that he's unable to. He's not asking you because it's all up to you and he's just going to go take a break. When God asks you to do something, 
even though it seems completely out of your ability, it's unwise, maybe even not safe, this perfect, loving, and sovereign God already has his purposes worked out. He's actually asking you along because he knows you can't provide anything, and he will be glorified. Also, by asking you to come along, it's going to strengthen your faith as you watch him work what you truly know to be impossible. And so back to the disciples here, it says that Jesus was just asking to test them. Well, what was he testing? He was testing their faith and understanding of who he is. You know, these are the same disciples, as I mentioned before, who had seen him change water into wine uh, here at, at Canaan. They had seen him heal a nobleman's son from a distance. They had heard about him healing a paralytic man at the pool. They had also just been sent out preaching the word and healing the sick. Yet, when the one who had done all these things asks them how they're going to feed these people, they still show that their faith is in their own ability and in their own resources. And speaking of resources, Andrew comes along to, to kind of help show Jesus um, how silly this all is. And he shows them that, well, you know, we have this boy's meal here. It's five barley loaves and two fish. Surely this will show Jesus they have nowhere near the resources needed to feed these people. And as a matter of fact, John points out that the loaves are barley loaves. Uh, those were considered like the cheapest, you know, pieces of bread, the, the, the bread of the poor, if you will. Um, so really what he's showing is, you know, we don't have anything. And even, even what we do have is just pitiful. Um, and yet Jesus doesn't seem to agree. And he takes basically this kid's Lunchable and he offers, he offers thanks. And it's probably not the response the disciples were expecting. Like here they are showing him the cold hard facts. This is not going to work. And Jesus takes this nothing and is like, oh, awesome. Thank you. I can't imagine their faces as they watched him do that. Um, they had explained the foolishness. Um, they had explained that it was not reasonable or logical, and yet he gives thanks. And really what's about to happen is they're about to learn what R. Kent Hughes writes, which is, little is much when God is in it. Do you have nothing to give? Then give that. Your nothing plus God is everything. And I'll tell you what, this is kind of a hard message um, for us to, like, we say it and that sounds nice and maybe we'll get it embroidered on something, but... <laughs> To actually trust it and, like, live it out, that's a hard thing, um, especially for us uh, here in the suburbs. Uh, we know a thing or two about making calculated plans, following them, and then being secure and comfortable. So when God asks us to step out of those plans to do something for him, it can be really easy for us to point out the foolishness of what he's asking. We can say, you know, God, I can't go to the mission field because it's too dangerous, or I have too many important things to get done before I do that, or, or I don't have the skill set to go do that. I think sometimes we even do it when it comes to something as simple as sharing our faith, right? God wants us to go talk to someone about him, uh, but somehow we think we know better. And we say to God, well, I can't, I can't go talk to that person, God. That person is, is too weird. You know, that person is, you know, too lost. Um, or I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the right words. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be wise. Um, we need to have discernment. But if God is calling you to do something, that's really all you need to know. Sometimes I, I think it's good practice 
to take a step back and ask ourselves, is everything I'm doing right now fitting into the plans that I laid out that are leading towards my own comfort and security? Because if they are, then are we really listening to what God is calling us to, or are we on a path that is leading to more faith in ourselves and our plans and not him? And so Christ feeds the 5,000. And, you know, it's interesting. I always think about this when I read this. We don't really know how that works, right? Like, you know, it's just crazy. It just keeps, it's like the, the magician who keeps pulling the, you know, string out. Like, how does that work? I don't know. Um, but what we do know is that um, it feeds the, the masses to their fill. And not only that, um, there are 12 baskets left over. And I'd like to point out two quick takeaways on that. Um, one is, you know, Jesus asks the disciples to gather up the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. Um, and I think that's interesting because, you know, we see there that God is not interested in waste of what he's provided, and neither should we then. Um, you know, we shouldn't waste, hoard, or abuse our resources and, and gifts that he's blessed us with. And that means not just our material possessions, but also our talents uh, and our gifts that, that God is, has blessed us with. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that there were 12 baskets full. It was, it was an overabundance, really. Um, and, you know, uh, I was reading in some commentaries, uh, they point out that the 12 represents that God fully provides for his people, you know, meaning the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Um, and I, I think it also shows us that when God provides for us, it's, it's more than enough. Now, uh, I think the danger... Uh, when preaching something like this, uh, is we can, we can kind of misunderstand it, which, which I think is what happens to the crowds here, to be honest. Um, we can, we can look at, at this prosperity or blessing of God and think that somehow, um, you know, the prosperity shows the level of our faith or the amount that God loves us. Um, and that's not, that's not the message here at all. Um, and, and I want to point it out. There are those of us here today who are struggling and suffering, and in need, and you have true faith, um, and yet you're walking through this instance where you feel like you're, you're needy. Um, the message here is that you can trust in God, even though he may not be providing the way you would hope. The message here is that God has not forgotten you, he cares about your needs, and he already knows what he's going to do. But I think the problem is if we start to allow ourselves to look at God solely for what we can get out of him or as our problem fixer, then we run into the danger of what these people do, um, making Jesus something that he isn't. Um, Back in John 6, verses 14 through 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is the one uh, who who is to come into the world. Perceiving them then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people started making the connection of the bread being served here with the manna in the wilderness, and they remember what God had said in Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. Um, oh, I was going the wrong way, I bet. There we go. Um, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Um, 
you know, so they're thinking as they remember this and seeing this miracle of being provided bread out of nowhere, that this must be the prophet that Moses had told them about. And it appears that their understanding of this prophet would that he would also be the king who would overthrow the government, putting the Israelites back on top. You know, they saw Jesus as a king who would fulfill their purposes, and they were willing to take him in that role, whether he wanted to do it or not. And we may think that sounds kind of crazy or harsh, uh, but how often do we do the same thing? You know, sometimes, like I I mentioned before, uh, we want him to be a Jesus that gives us what we want when we want it, and if he doesn't, we kind of turn our back on him or, or shake our fists at him. Sadly, I think in our culture, we're more prone to take Jesus by force for what we want than actually getting to know him and what he wants. And so how do we get to know Jesus? Well, we remember the gospel. We, we repeat it to ourselves. We talk to each other about it. Uh, we, we read our Bibles. We pray. We hear the testimonies of other believers. We gather as, uh, as his body, the church, and we worship. You know, the people were actually partially right uh, in, uh, about Jesus being the prophet and the king. Uh, because Jesus carries out the offices of prophet in the fact that, um, the office of prophet in the fact that he brings forth God's word. Uh, he carries out the office of king in that we are subjected to him and he defeats our enemies. Uh, but he also carries out the office of priest. Um, he offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. He's continually interceding for us. Um, this is actually what this miracle is pointing towards, um, what the feeding of the 5,000 is pointing to. Um, and he talks about it in his, uh, in his sermon to the people later in chapter 6. I'll actually spoil the sermon in two weeks. Um, here you go. Uh, this is from later in chapter 6, verses 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the, de- the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus provided enough food from five barley loaves and two fish to feed the 5,000. But those people would eventually be hungry, which is why they come back to him later in chapter 6. And what he explains to them is that he himself, the word become flesh, is the true bread from heaven that doesn't satisfy their stomachs, but brings them life so that they will never hunger for anything else again. If you're here today and you're feeling unsatisfied uh, in this life, if everything you've tried to accomplish or have sought after for comfort or whatever it may be has just come up short and you feel like you're needy and grasping at straws, Look towards Jesus. That's what this is about. He offers himself. He cleanses you of your sin, and he gives you life and fulfills everything that you need to its fullest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message. I thank you for uh, Jesus coming down, walking this earth, showing us what it means to have true life, but also dying on the cross and raising again for our sins, or for, for new life, Lord God. Lord, I pray right now for those who maybe are struggling in this room, those who uh, are needy or just feeling like everything they've tried to do has fallen short, I pray that you would speak to their hearts, that they would turn towards Jesus, 
and that they would see him as Savior. Lord, for those of us who do know you, but we find ourselves in a place of need, or we find ourselves in a place of you calling us to something, but it just doesn't make any sense, help us to trust in you. Help us to remember how you have provided over and over. Help us to remember your steadfast love. Lord, be with us today as we, we walk in your truth. Help us to be a light to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.